Bitcoin's the answer, right? It's the only hedge or vaccine to give you immunity to the disease of money printing. Hello there from the UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a massive interview, something I've been working on for over a year, an interview with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss from Gemini. But before that, I have a message from my amazing show sponsors. So first up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And have you checked out their new mobile app yet? Everything you expect from BlockFi packed into your phone. Quick and easy to sign up. You can get started in just minutes, allowing you to earn interest, borrow USD and instantly access your portfolio. You can open a BlockFi interest account and earn money on your Bitcoin. And you can also use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. The app enables funds to be transferred directly from a crypto wallet into your BlockFi account. And that's not all. In the coming weeks and months, they are going to be rolling out additional functionality to make the app even better and easier to use. If you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And we also have Kraken, who puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Now, there has been a massive growing interest in Bitcoin recently. I've had a few of my friends get in touch recently, texts or messages on Facebook, and they're like, Pete... Tell me about this Bitcoin thing or Pete, is it a good time to invest in Bitcoin, which is why I created my Bitcoin in one lesson show. Now, listen, if you are new to Bitcoin, there is no better place to get started than with Kraken. At Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and buy Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. With their world-class security, they are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, they can help you with any issues you have, whoever you are and wherever you are. There is no better place to buy Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available in the iPhone and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show. And this is a show I've been wanting to make for a long time. And it's funny, when you make a podcast, you kind of go through a journey of trying to get guests. And some are easy to get, some are more difficult. Sometimes you just have to work your way up the food chain or perhaps even just get lucky and meet somebody at some point who will give you an intro. And I've been working on trying to get Cameron and Tyler on for over a year. Different people I've asked, different ways to try and get in to see them because... The reason I wanted to interview them is my perception of them came from watching The Social Network and seeing their interviews on things like Bloomberg. But I, I wanted to get behind this. I wanted to get actually talk to them and ask them the questions that I wanted answered, find out a bit more about them. And finally, they relented. Finally, I, I found the right person to provide an intro and they agreed to come on the show. And it was a great show. And it was a monster, actually. Usually you plan for about an hour. We did nearly two hours. I've got a feeling we probably could have gone for another two hours. But they answered every one of my questions. There was no off-topic subjects. I got to ask them everything I wanted to know about the social network, the film, what that meant for them. I got to ask them about what it's like being twins working together. I got to find out their Bitcoin thesis. So many things. Now, I know you probably know who they are. And if you haven't seen The Social Network, go and check it out. The David Fincher movie. It's a brilliant movie. It's really well made. Now, it's probably not, well, I mean, they confirmed it. It's a piece of art, right? It's probably not an accurate representation of them, but it does give you a bit of the backstory of what happened at Facebook. I'm going to assume you've seen it. Following their settlement, though, because they did settle with Mark for $65 million, and they left that as majority stock in the company, which was a very shrewd and smart move. Following that, they also then set up Finkelvoss Capital. They've done Gemini. And, oh, yeah, and they also represented the U.S. rowing team at the Beijing Olympics. Yeah, they've done quite a lot. <laughs> so 
I'm really glad I got to do this. I'm really glad they uh, they were game for all my questions. I hope to do it again sometime in the future. Now, if you've got any questions about this interview, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And just one other thing. A lot of you know I've got another show, Defiance. I switched it up this uh, last couple of weeks. And I put out a show two days ago called The Money Game, Cheaters Edition. Now, I changed the format for the show. I went for like a mini documentary style. And this one looks at the ills of government and central banking. It's got Andreas Antonopoulos, Caitlin Long, Raoul Powell, Travis Kling and Ben Hunt. It's available on defiance.news. Go and check it out. Let me know what you think. It's uh, heading very quickly to be the most downloaded and listened to Defiance show. So I think the switch up has worked. But let me know what you think. Anyway, I hope you have a great weekend. It's Friday here, although weekends don't mean anything on these lockdowns. But I hope you have a great weekend. If you've got any questions, as I said, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Tyler, Cameron, how are you both? Good. Good, thanks. How are you doing? So, yeah, good. Well, really good because I've taken, it's taken me about a year to get you two on the podcast. I've gone through every route possible, every That's person it? I know. That was longer. Well, I mean, it was two years ago I first wanted it, but about a year ago I met somebody at a BlockFi party who worked for Gemini. I was like, come on. And then I've been pestering Jane for about six months to hook this up. And then and then Zach at BlockFi. And finally I thought, right, we're on lockdown. You've probably got some time, so here we are. So thank you for coming on. I've got loads I want to talk to you about. Before we get into the meaty Bitcoin stuff, I, I want to I want to find out a bit more about you two. I want to know a bit more about you two because uh, I, I only know you through a film and some other stuff. And we will do some juicy Bitcoin stuff, but just knowing that you two, like you two, have always been a team, right? So you did the you went to college, you did the uh, your Olympic rowers, right, as a team, and now you run a company together. But but are you are you competitive with each other? We're not really competitive with each other. I think we we probably push, we definitely push each other. And I think the mentality has always been like, if somebody, you know, achieves something like, let's say on the rowing machine, if Tyler had a, pulled a big score, I'd be like, okay, I guess I can do that. Maybe I could do a little bit better. So it's not like a head-on uh, sort of the competition that is often destructive or, or creates tension in a relationship. It's more of like, a pushing and a supporting type of relationship. And I think a lot of it's driven by a curiosity, like how good can I get? Um, how far can I push myself and having a teammate and someone as sort of like a sounding board in that adventure is, is really helpful. And does that translate into Gemini? I think a hundred percent. We bring a lot of our background and a lot of our background is athletics into the day-to-day and how we kind of uh, lead and think about, you know, Gemini. And a lot of it's driven by this curiosity to explore the new frontier of crypto that, you know, today the frontier is crypto, but tomorrow it might be something else. So yeah, I think it's, it's there all the time. And have you got like different strengths between you that you both recognize? Cause you have, you can't do the same role. Well, we definitely don't, always agree on everything. Um, we're not sort of ratifying each other. And so it isn't this, you know, echo chamber of, of the same point of view. We might end up getting to the same place ultimately, but we might have different sort of views on how to get there. And I think that's what makes it pretty exciting. And I think that if we were agreeing with each other all the time, then that would probably be problematic. And we'd have to think about that. Because I think a lot of great ideas and things there is like healthy disagreement on on what the right you know approach might be 
Tyler, what would you disagree on? So Cameron's lefty and I'm righty. So I guess technically we use different sides of our brain or more dominant. Um, we're what you call mirror image twins. So I guess 25% of twins are righty, lefty, mirror image. And I guess the egg splits later in the pregnancy process. So uh, that's kind of a fun fact. And maybe that's kind of why we come at things slightly differently but with like the same value set and foundation, but different enough to keep things interesting and be a really good team. As rowers, I only rowed on starboard. So I sort of leaned out to one side of the boat and Cameron leaned only to the other side of the boat. We were those sides our whole 15 years of rowing. So it's pretty cool when you see anybody in a pair, it sort of splits at the front of the boat and then it comes back together at the finish of the stroke. So yeah, our mirroredness worked very well in, in sports, but we used to play Legos, you know, as kids, we were teammates all along. And as Cameron said, like his victory is my victory and mine is his. And that's kind of like, I think what made us different than other siblings who compete against each other, but in a really negative sort of toxic way, we never felt that way. We felt like we're in this together and that's allowed us to basically be teammates our whole lives for over 38 years. I didn't even know there's there was like a, a mirror twin thing. This is like a, a whole new thing for me to yeah, learn about. It's pretty wild. Like when you see us yeah. eating across the table, you'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's mad. So like you're essentially two halves of the same. So does that mean one of you is more creative and one of you is more, I don't know, a more kind of like math type person? So I think that a lot of people a lot of times people try to make it like is one more creative than the yeah. other. And I think um, in reality, we're equally creative. It's just, I go about it in a different way than Tyler does. So like back in high school, when we were studying for an exam, I would sort of probably go straight to studying, maybe have my papers a little more scattered all over the floor and just kind of get right into it. And Tyler would spend a lot of time organizing and making like perfect notes, but he might not spend as much time actually studying them. And we ended up getting about the same grades. It was just a different approach, you know. So I think that the way Tyler creates is different than mine, but I wouldn't say that I'm more or less creative than him. And working together, we can really amplify the the outcome um, significantly more than if I was, you know, working in a vacuum. And I, you, you sort of see that, especially in technology, there's always great, duos throughout the past 30, 40 years. You've got uh, Gates and Allen, Jobs and uh, Waz, and, and it, the list goes on and on. It's never really this one singular person. That's a myth and and like often perpetuated by things like Hollywood because it sort of makes for a simplistic, easy to digest story, but it's never that simple. It's way more nuanced and complex. And in the case of us, it's just you know, so obvious because there's literally two of us and we look the same. <laughs> well, did Hollywood do that to you guys? Did it oversimplify everything? I mean, I think it has to, right? Like nobody, <laughs> um, you've got like a two, maybe three hour time attention span to write, to write a movie or to tell a story. So it cannot be so rooted in factual stuff. Then you'd have like a 40 hour documentary. And a lot of people won't show up to see that. So there has to be some creative license to capture the spirit of something, but not necessarily 
the reality, but be inspired by it. So yeah, I think I think that's the medium uh, of a movie, and you have to take that approach to it. You can't expect it to be more than it is. So when that film happened, do you? I know you've probably talked about it a bunch of times, but people want to hear about this stuff. But do you, do you get consulted on it, or does it just happen? It just happened. There was enough <laughs> in the public domain because there was litigation, as you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of not all the documents were public, but a lot of enough of it. So I think all of us met the standard of public people. So the the film producers and screenwriters could write create that story. So yeah, it just kind of happened. We were not involved. And and it really happened, and to sort of get technical on it, is Zuckerberg's roommate pitched the story, Eduardo Severin. Mm. He had a falling out with Mark. He pitched the story to Ben Mesrick, who wrote 21 that became Bringing Down the House. And he wrote another book that became a movie. It escapes me at this moment. Ben wrote the book, only a treatment, got leaked to the internet. And then Scott Rudin, the producer, and Aaron Sorkin jumped on it and were like, we love this story. It's Shakespearean betrayal. It's got all these amazing elements. And I think that's before they even understood the rift between us and Mark. It was just between his roommate and that falling out later down the road in Facebook history. They jumped on it. They're the kind of folks that have enough track record and influence to Hollywood to get anything pretty much greenlit. And so they, you know, made it happen. And all of a sudden, I think it was something like 18 months later, the movie David Fincher did it and it was, it was, uh, it was out in theaters. And then I think it even surprised them how well it did because we got to met, meet Aaron and Scott and all the creators and even the actors at the end of the filming. And I don't think they realized, I think they knew they were onto something. And this was the fall of 2010. They did a screening and it was a really big hit, you know, with this study group or control group. But then when I went to theaters, it really just um, beat all of their wildest expectations and dreams of what it could do. And it was the front runner for best picture in the award season up until the final moment when Harvey Weinstein did his magic, or <laughs> I think you didn't even call it magic, and got the, the King's speech to you know win that vote. It's a very political game. There's 6,000 people who vote on who's the best picture. And if you're good at you know influencing them, whining and dining or whatever, um, and you get them to vote your way, then, then you win. And, and there wasn't really a campaign for the social network because I don't think they expected it to be up there. So they didn't quite have the, the machine behind it the way that the Weinstein company did at that time. Well, the, the tell is also that the premiere was in September at the New York Film Festival, which is a very prestigious and great festival. But if you believe that you have a best picture, it's very hard to keep that in the public consciousness for, I don't know, however mo many months from September until February. Mm. So what you end up doing is you try to release really closer to like November, December, and have that meteoric rise peak like perfectly at the, you know, during the award season. So that's kind of the tell that they weren't, they didn't realize that how popular it would be, but also how critically acclaimed the film might be. I mean, I loved it. I'm not just saying that because you're here, but I genuinely loved it. And I think one of the things that helped me was I'm a big Fincher fan. Almost everything he oh, nice. does is, is amazing. Even even Alien 3, which got like panned, I thought was brilliant. I thought it was really unique 
part of the story. But so I really liked it. I thought they did a really really good job. But the thing I'm trying to get at is, I guess when I saw it, I saw it cold, like you would have seen it for the first time. But the film is about about me. I'm not in it. So like, what yeah. what is it like? Just just what is it like? Just I mean, is that one dude played you both by? But what is it like watching a story being told about part of your life and you've had no control out of it? I would say the the word surreal is it probably best describes it. It is, I guess it's hard to quite explain. Um, I guess you kind of are removed a little bit. You're watching, in a way, characters on a screen that are sort of not you, but supposed to be you. Yeah, I'm not sure other than surreal probably how best to describe it. I mean, the the older I get and I see clips of it, the more I can sort of appreciate it objectively as art and be like, oh, that's interesting. I get it. But when I first saw it in 2010, it was like, that's definitely not me. I saw all the places where it wasn't me and how it was so wrong, but I loved the movie and I was able to separate and compartmentalize the difference between this is a great story. It's a great movie. That doesn't mean it's me. Um, and I've never not felt that way, but the older I get, the more I can sort of appreciate it objectively, like maybe how you can more of like a stranger coming to it and just enjoying it. Do you remember where, where did you watch it for the first time? Was it like a premiere or just like the two of you in an apartment somewhere? I think we did a, at least one screening pre seeing it at the premiere and then we saw it at the New York at the New York Film Festival. I think we saw it at at Sony at Sony's headquarters. Um, we got a pre previewing. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I think another thing to point out is that is that the the goal of the filmmakers was to sort of tell three points of view or three sides of a story. It was not to draw a conclusion, and you can credibly sort of argue each side of it and. The, the goal really is that when people leave the, the the theater, that's when the conversation starts. And it's supposed to be polarizing on that level. And so you can, it's really interesting to see people take different sides. And some people think that it's sort of this, supposed to be this definitive thing. And, and it's really art and it's trying to create a conversation. And the producer, one of the producers, Scott Rudin, he said, look, if, if I, was going to tell the story, I could do it in 12 minutes. But it's not about telling, you know, a start, finish, and a conclusion. It's about that conversation. It's very much like uh, Rashomon, if you've seen that, by Kira Kurosawa. And it's the subjectivity of truth. Like, different people interpret this crime scene differently. And the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle. So you can take Mark's position, you can take our position, you can take Eduardo's position and people really identify with, you know, A, B and C, depending on like their own experience. And sometimes it cuts down to like how you felt in high school. Did you identify with the jocks, with the nerds, with the nerds that are falling out? The truth is all of us are nerds. Like we were nerds in high school. We were too busy rowing and studying to be cool, the cool jock kids. But that was our caricature in the movie. So really, like, you take the side, it's so brilliant, because you take the side with whoever you identify with. And like Cameron said, there, it's, it's, like, inconclusive. There's great arguments on, like, both sides. Like, if you invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. And then Eduardo, like, has some retort of, like, something like, you know, obviously, I feel we did something wrong. We must have done something wrong. Like, they sent us a cease and desist letter. 
and, and there's like, there's ammunition for everybody. You know, as like Cameron said, like the conversation begins when you leave the theater and you can just see groups of friends going and like having these amazing arguments and heated debates of like, who's right, who's wrong, who owns the idea and this and that. And, and the initial case wasn't even about IP. It was like one of 10 claims. But it was really a fraud claim that was the major thrust of it and breach of contract. But like, forget breach of contract. Fraud doesn't require a contract. It just requires someone to knowingly make misrepresentations to you that you rely on to your detriment. And we have that, like with the emails, just re- look at the public documents. So the movie sort of talks about like the idea and the IT, but the thrust of the legal case, that was like a claim we could have not put in or put in, like it was, it was a footnote to like the actual thing. So just brilliant job on the, the filmmakers to tell that story in a way that really shaped the generation, how they thought. And the thing I'm most proud about it is how it inspired a generation of founders and future entrepreneurs. If sort of, I sort of like think about this and it's not my work, so I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I don't think it does because I didn't create the movie. But like what Top Gun did to Navy aviation and the idea of like people wanting to be a Top Gun pilot I think the social network did for startups and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, like I said, I mean, I love the film. My, my son loves the film. He's actually downstairs. And I told him I'm doing this interview. He's like, what? But he, <laughs> he loved the film. My dad, my dad loved the film. And that, that was one of the great things is like anyone could enjoy that film. I, I, think, I, th- I think it was great. And listen, look, without getting into the, the details, we don't need to do that today. But would you say it was a fairly accurate representation of the situation? I think that it... It, it captured a moment in time for sure. The zeitgeist of, of that period of time. It's, I think, maybe one of the first sort of modern films about the 2000s that captures that well. There's a lot of things that aren't in the film that would lead you to a different conclusion. But I think there's a lot of a- accuracy in the film. But I, I think to, to what we were sort of talking about earlier, we view it as sort of great art. It's a starting point. If you really want to understand what happened, you'd have to go to the documents, like court filings, the public record. It's not a conclusive thing, as you're mentioning. Like, you're not going to watch that movie and, like, have a fully formed opinion of what happened. But it captures the spirit. It's very zeitgeisty. It's almost like it feels like there's an element of, like, Breakfast Club, you know, about it. Like, how that captured the 80s, like, um, was it the John Hughes movies like that really captured what it was like to go to high school and grow up in the 80s? And then this captured college campuses in, you know, the aughts. Um, so but it's a great starting point. If you really want to know, like what happened or get really technical, you you'd have to go so much deeper because it's it's just like the beginning. I'll tell you another interesting thing. I think time changes how you reflect on it as well and I, th- I think I've seen it around four times and when I like apologies for this but when I first watched it I think I was team Zuck and I was like fuck those guys those jocks because you're big and Olympic rowers and, and I'm not and I'm short 
I now I saw it again a couple of years ago, and I reflect on it, and I'm now now like, no fuck, Mark. I'm I'm Team Vinglewas, and I tell you a funny thing, Cameron. You you don't know my show, but you did once like a tweet of mine, and I, I put out this tweet once. I was like, I think something like this. I can't wait for the Social Network to Bitcoin's going to be at a hundred grand, and the Vinglewas are going to have their revenge on Zuck. And then you, you you gave me a little like, and that was the nice. only time. But I think time you reflect on it differently over time because you see how what Facebook has become. Yeah, and. And it isn't great in a lot of ways. And you can also look at some of the stuff you've done. And I think the reality of what the people in it who've been representing the film have actually done in life allow you to look at the film in a different way. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I the my only gripe with the film, and I understand why they did this, is it doesn't – our characters don't come off as entrepreneurs. They come off as people of high integrity, great character, athletic, polite, you know, all these like – cool qualities but there's this whole gap of, of who we are like the creativity curiosity entrepreneurial that's left out it's sort of omitted so we're sort of painted like in these broad brushstrokes and then like so it's the geeks the geniuses the jocks you know and i think life is 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 more like we're a little bit more more than that at least the two of us like we just have more ranges of of who we are as as people and we've, we've, we've shown that over time. You know, I think by building Gemini, by founding a company, by being in tech, rowing was always kind of a detour. It started in high school. We started the rowing team. Our next door neighbors were always said, hey, let's try this sport. One thing led to another. Good at it. Get into college. Good at it there. Let's give it a shot. Zuckerberg, you know, the thing with Facebook happened. So, okay, let's keep rowing. Make the Olympics. Oh, we're 30, 15 years. That went quick. But... Um, we always love technology, entrepreneurship. Our dad is an entrepreneur. We grew up hanging out in his office. We grew up in a startup, um, we like to say. And rowing was kind of like we created the rowing team at our high school. It was like our first startup. It was also a detour from who we are and what, what our passions were. So getting back into entrepreneurship, we, we've done that the last almost 10 years. And I think people see that side of us that they didn't see in the movie. And then on the other side of the, the equation, I think that Facebook and Zuckerberg, that pattern just keeps repeating. You know, so like all of the, the great, who are these guys? We don't really know anybody. Everyone's so young. You're saying this, they're saying that, you know, who, who do we believe? You know, the movie sort of take, you know, gives everyone a point of view, but then the actions and the behaviors continue and sort of the truth comes out. So, yeah, I think there's, it's true. I mean, maybe the, the simple way to put it is that if you asked me at 13 or if you told me at 13, hey, you're going to be running a technology company as an adult, I'd be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's exactly where I sort of see myself. If you say to me at 13, you're you're an Olympian, I'd be like, huh? What? How, how did that work? You know, because because rowing wasn't, you know, on our even on our radar at that point. But we grew up you know, around technology and were really obsessed, um, got online really early, started building web pages on the side for fun, making some bucks here and there. We were just really into it. And our dad's an entrepreneur. He has a software company. And so we grew up walking around that, that his office and talking to the engineers and looking at the cool, like new computers and equipment I remember getting Windows 95 and getting home from school and being so excited to install it. So that was really a big part of our 
childhood. And I think that didn't really come off as to Tyler's point. And I think people probably see more of that today. There's also this idea that it, like it can't be a bunch of a, a group of entrepreneurs. There's sort of one founder entrepreneur and everybody else is, is sort of not, you know, they're, they're either athletes or something else. But then you look at like the PayPal mafia and you have like four or five, six people who have started multiple global technology companies over and over again. So, but that's a harder story to tell. Yeah. All right. Listen, I've asked you enough about that. Only only one more thing in there, actually. Did you ever like make up with Zuck? Because you kind of potentially with Libra uh, crossing over and there was like some talk about, I can't remember, I'm just going off memory, like, would you guys list Libra or something along those lines? Like, did you ever talk to him again? Or is that like just all gone? The last time we spoke with him is, is I mean, to, to sort of capture it, it's the first chapter of Bitcoin Billionaires um, at the settlement. Um, so Bitcoin wow. Billionaires is the book that Ben wrote. Ben obviously wrote Accidental Billionaires, which became the social network. So Bitcoin Billionaires is almost like the sequel or picking up where it left off. But that first chapter captures uh, the meeting and discussion we had with Mark. But that was the last time we spoke with him. And there's a lot of questions around Libra when it came out um, or was announced about a year ago. And uh, look, we're, we're excited about the project and, and we think it's great that a company of Facebook stature is uh, looking at crypto. I think it's still sort of unclear how in the direction of crypto or will it be more centralized, but it is sort of the beginning of probably many large companies entering the space. And so, yeah, we're, we're pretty positive on, on that kind of development. Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't talked with Mark since I think the settlement discussions in 2008. But, you know, our differences are, you know, that chapter is closed and we separate that from the merit of something like Libra or what's good for Gemini. We're not about to be personal or let that bleed over into, you know, what's the right thing to do for our company, what's the right thing to do for mm-hmm. crypto. So we, 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 we try and dispassionately, objectively look at Libra and we're open to it. You know, it's, it's been fantastic that a company of Facebook stature has even uttered the word cryptocurrency. Whether or not Libra is actually, like Cameron said, an open cryptocurrency that's on an open network or something more like closed, you know, we'll see. But it certainly got the conversation going and was very positive for the market. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I could I could see this totally wrong, but I could imagine some time after the settlement, you know, Facebook's growing, you're looking at it going, fucking hell, look at that. Now, move on a few years later, and you've built this huge successful business, you're in Bitcoin, which is a whole lot more interesting, and in some ways kind of antithetical to what Facebook is doing, which is you know, a massive invasion of privacy sometimes. And I, I guess there's you've reflected on different times, but now you wouldn't change anything, right? So one one interesting fact is we settled, but we actually settled and we took stock, the majority of it in stock, at a $15 billion valuation. And that was something in the um, mediation that myself and Cameron pushed for. Our team of lawyers were like, take the cash, you're crazy. Um, we're like, no, you're crazy. Like, we want to go back to the beginning where we started as entrepreneurs with some skin in the game. So we pushed back and took the majority of, of, of the 65 million in, 
in stock at a $15 billion uh, company valuation. So when Facebook was doing well, like we were tied to it. But to answer your question more directly, like I couldn't, there's nothing I'd rather be working on and doing right now than crypto. It's amazing what Facebook's accomplished. But when I log into the internet, like I don't log into Facebook. That place feels dead. You know, it doesn't feel where the action's happening. It doesn't seem like an exciting problem to work on. But the future of money, the frontier of crypto, like where that's going, probably feels like what social media felt like, social networks felt like back in the early 2000s. But it's more meaningful. Instead of sharing pictures or connecting with people, which is great. A lot of good can come with that. Um, you know, you can share money. You can pay people. You can economically include people. So I think the promise is much greater. And money is the greatest social network of all, Bitcoin being the first. And I think it's more meaningful and impactful to the world than, than social networking. So uh, I would never trade the problem I'm working on right now for that previous problem. And you're seeing like Facebook's getting into crypto because like they're kind of bored yeah, with, with their franchise. It's amazing. But it's like dying, man. Okay. Um but like I mean it's just boring. It's like it's boring. Like the yeah, novelty is worn look, off. You you yeah. you make enough money, like, you know, that gets boring too. Like, you know, as humans, we I think it's called hedonic adaptation. Like we just like a billion dollars, okay, it gets boring. Like 10 billion like you know, Elon Musk didn't isn't stopping working and Zuckerberg's not stopping working despite the fact that they're worth so much money. You know, it's all about like what they're curious about and passionate and the problem they're working on. So that's really what's important. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. there's nothing more depressing in technology than sort of hanging on to an old franchise and, and clinging on for life. And I think Microsoft had that phase where it really felt like it was um, just uh, had jumped the shark. And it's pretty miraculous, the, the turnaround that's, that's been led. And it's now arguably innovating a lot of its competitors. But, you know, Web 2.0, that, that sort of ship is sailed, it's done. And we're now looking at Web 3, and it's literally the future. And that's really the exciting part. And um, look, I'm sure the there's a lot of you know people in the PayPal mafia who and maybe they if they'd sold to eBay or held out a little bit longer would have made a little bit more. But if you expect to be a founder, an entrepreneur, an investor over the long haul, 20, 30 years, that's just the beginning. So that's sort of how we we look at it. Like we we want to be doing this for the next, you know multiple decades and so why why get too concerned about one outcome versus the next if you're in it for the long game so your facebook stock that was like a seed investment then in some ways i i, I guess in some ways um yeah, yeah. go and build that company and we'll do something else yeah <laughs> thank you mark <laughs> cheers mike <laughs> All right, listen, look, the, the other story, like, I know this story, but I know a lot of people won't. Can you tell the Ibiza story? Because I think it's fascinating. Oh, sure. one more thing before we leave that yeah. last chapter. Our position was never that, like, hey, we deserve everything, you know, about Facebook. It was, it was we deserve more than zero. You yeah, know? you stole our fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. Like, so. here's an idea. Can you go and build it? And you, st you stole it. Like, I get it. It's cool. 
Yeah. Like I'm, I'm with you on that, but uh, I don't think you have to defend that. I think most people get that, right? Yeah. At the time, a lot of people were like, I don't know. It seemed like half the people got it and half the people didn't. But you know, Facebook probably also- had a huge crisis PR firm, you know, churning out op-eds against us. Of course. I I think people also (laughs) focused a ton on just like the technology and the computer code. And people didn't really realize how big, big tech was going to get. And, And we're sort of seeing that with the pandemic right now. It's decimating small business and the middle class. And all of that is accruing to big tech. And so it's so important to understand like the mission of these companies are they mission oriented what are the values and how are they you know dealing with that thing and and they're totally happy with the lockdown they don't have a problem with the lockdown because it's not hurting them and it might even actually be benefiting them so if you're youtube and someone's putting up discourse or uh contradicting like the lockdown as maybe the right solution censor it right misinformation it only helps us so it's really perverse yeah well, I've got, I've got, I want to cover that as well, actually, because I think that's that's that itself is an interesting area to cover. But I, I do want to do the Ibiza thing. We got to go back to Ibiza, yeah, yeah, because it, it's such a cool story. So we we went out there in August of 2012. We had just retired from rowing. We're trying to figure out what the next step for us was. We had just set up Winklevoss Capital, which is you know our family office that focuses on backing you know startups, founders. It's effectively a venture fund, except for we're the sole LP. We provide all the capital, um, which gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of what we can invest in. It also allows us to you know, move quickly, and we don't have to deal with explaining a lot of things to other LPs and saying, oh, this is why we're you know, investing in this really weird uh, new form of money that you know the news will tell you that's only being used for illicit activity. So... We had start, just set up Winklevoss Capital, and our idea was like, look, we know we want to start something again, but we're not sure what that is right now. So let's, why don't we just start investing, meet lots of entrepreneurs, build out our network, and learn, and learn through investing. And sort of as we were doing that, we went out to Ibiza to take a break. And this how guy- great, How great is Ibiza, though? It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. The Mediterranean, so honestly, in in July, August, it's hard to beat. Um, mm-hmm. Such a wonderful part of the world. Um, so we went out there, and a guy recognized us from the social network, and we started, you know, talking. And he's like, "Have you guys heard about, or have you thought about virtual currency or Bitcoin?" And I was like, "No, tell me more." <laughs> um, and it sounded a bit weird and foreign at first, but after a shot of tequila, it started to really make sense. And then we we connected on Twitter. I said, hey, DM me. And when we got back stateside, he sent over some links, you know, some literature. And we started, you know, diving pretty deep into it. And I think at one point I remember turning to Tyler and saying, this is either complete bullshit or the next big thing. And it was super exciting once we kind of understood what it could be and i'm not sure we could have even at that moment like totally articulate it because it's hard to capture bitcoin in one you know it, it, there's so many layers to it but it fe- felt like this underdog 
thing that was could potentially challenge almost everything starting with the financial system and you know i think what really struck us and resonated was this idea that it provided greater choice independence and opportunity like a new system and i think a lot of early bitcoiners perhaps focus on destroying the old system and for us it's more about creating a new system with new opportunities um and and it kind of goes back like when when we think back to our origin story and and kind of our background when we got into rowing in high school there was no rowing team there was no rowing in our town as tyler mentioned our next door neighbor had rowed he had gone away to school and rowed and so we said let's let's give this a shot except for there was no actual options in our town and everybody did sort of the traditional sports and we ended up finding a a rowing club 30 minutes away it was an old train a, a wooden train station that had been moved and basically thrown on an empty lot there was no running water no electricity no power our locker room was the the gas station on the corner and we commuted up there for you know an hour each way pretty much like throughout the week doing homework in the car and rowing and after the first year, we went to the headmaster and we said, hey, we'd like to start a rowing team. And it wasn't about destroying the football team or destroying the basketball team. It was about creating this other option for people to row. And fast forward 20 years later, every single high school in the area, in Connecticut, where we grew up in Fairfield County, has a girls and boys rowing team. It's created hundreds, if not more, opportunities for people to play a sport. In fact, a lot of the high schools literally don't have enough sort of teams or sports teams for people to to participate. So a lot of kids, they get done with school at 2, 2 2.30 and they go home. And some kids that might be put to good use and some kids, you know, might be playing a lot of Fortnite and others might be getting into trouble. And it's created this all this new opportunity and it's all about like complementing the other sports and so that's how we view crypto i think and and, you know bitcoin we started viewing bitcoin as this alternative and and that's that's i think our framework but you didn't just think all right let's go and build an exchange or something you're like you had like the conviction to go and start buying up as much bitcoin as you could right yeah so I think that um, we, we kind of joke like so many people fought their way out of Bitcoin early on. And one of one of the things that probably helped did, us. Did you, is, did you say thought or thought? It almost sounded like thought. <laughs> uh, thought as in like think, but like thought, th- think your yeah. way out of something. Right. right. Um, and we didn't spend, you know, 10 years on a trading desk in finance. We didn't come with these preconceived notions or assumptions or ideas, we really came at it with a beginner's mind. And that is one of Gemini's actual core values. That's really how we think about the world and how we build products and build our platform is with a beginner's mind. We understand that there's elements of the Gemini exchange and our custodial infrastructure that will mimic or rhyme existing capital markets and market, you know, electronic markets. But we also know that this time it's going to be different in some way. And 
you really have to take like a first principles approach. And I think that's what Silicon Valley often, you know, they're sort of talking about the similar thing with that terminology. And our, our terminology is beginner's mind. We were beginners. We entered this space and we were really, it was more about like, how does this work? How can we get this to work? Then how can we kill this idea? Or this doesn't fit into the framework that I spent 20 years becoming a master of and perfecting. So I'm going to, I'm so emotionally tied to the 20 or 30 years I put into finance over here that I cannot let go of that and accept that this is the future. And we see that over and over and over again over the last you know decade or whatever. And we didn't have that. So that was really interesting. So we found it and we we didn't sort of dip our toe into it. We basically jumped head first or did a cannonball into the pool of crypto and started buying through brokers online. There used, you know, there's a lot of OTC brokers back in those days. Some of them are probably no longer in the market anymore. And they've been sort of replaced by by bigger brokers and bigger OTC desks that we read about a lot today. And then um, also Mt. Gox and bought a lot of Bitcoin at Mt. Gox. Thankfully, did not get caught up, you know, always sort of pulled it off exchange and wasn't injured in that collapse. And also bought some on, on Bitstamp, especially when Silk Road was busted because the Bitcoin price tanked because a lot of people were like, oh, well, there's, you know, 90% of the use case of this thing. And we're like, no, like, look at the blockchain, look at where these things are going. This is digital gold. And the media has totally skewed the narrative. It's all about, you know, anonymity, illicit transactions, drugs, assassinations. And it just, we knew on the ground in, in, in what we were doing and the people we were talking to that that wasn't the case. It wasn't the reality. And that what was the case is that the smartest people in the room um, were obsessed about Bitcoin. And the people, the cryptographers, the, the cypherpunks, and the protocol builders and developers, the people who were really not at the, you know, the, the commercialized form of Web 2.0, the Valley, they were the people that were interested, but they hadn't really, you know, they'd spent two decades or more thinking about these problems and fighting for online privacy. Um, talk to a guy like Zuko, uh, the Zcat, you know, Zuko Wilcox mm-hmm. of the Zcast project. He's been thinking about these things for for decades. And Satoshi was likely in that group. He, she, they, um, whoever it was. And when the white paper was published in 2009, it's the culmination of decades of work leading up to that. And I think Satoshi might have said they stood on the shoulder of giants. Um, you got guys like David Chaum um, who built the built the building blocks. So it's really interesting to see how sort of relevant, but for a long period of time in technology, the people who are now at the forefront of crypto and Bitcoin were really not not consi- you know not at that the forefront. I mean, the they, they weren't even just, like they weren't even like back office. They were like basement, you know, <laughs> unemployed, probably in a basement or some sort of like lab. And now they're the rock stars, which is kind of cool to see. Next up, I talked to Cameron Tyler more about Bitcoin, Wall Street and Gemini. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So firstly, let's welcome my new sponsor to the show. It's Least Authority. Now, this is for you techies out there, the builders creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company pushing the limits on how to build 
privacy respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design, while also making regular contributions to the open source and decentralized space. They can help improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer two protocol, P2P network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. Now, if you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a no obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the schedule a call button. That's leastauthority.com, L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. That's leastauthority.com. Also, have you checked out sportsbet.io yet? The best place for online gaming, and they also accept Bitcoin. Now, after this long sporting break due to coronavirus, football is now back on the agenda. They're back training in the UK. Premier League clubs are training. Hopefully, football's going to be coming back soon here, but the Bundesliga is already back playing again. And to celebrate this, Sportsbet has a Bundesliga Super Streak Challenge. If you win 10 bets in a row before the end of the season, you will walk away with 100 MBTC in cash. There's 0.1 Bitcoin or for you sat stackers, 10 million sats. Hopefully, the rest of football will be back soon as well. Can't wait. Cannot wait. Cannot wait to have a good bet on Tottenham losing. Anyway, if you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And lastly, today, we have crypto mining tools. With the halving now gone, we've got Scott Offord back on the show. You know, the Bitcoin halving had a big impact on mining profitability, and Scott from Crypto Mining Tools has a solution for Bitcoin mining equipment owners looking to get a little bit more out of their miners. I've told you before about Scott's Bitcoin mining calculator in the past. Well, Scott has recently launched a Bitcoin mining hosting directory. If you need to move your Bitcoin miners to a more cost-effective location due to the halving, go to cryptomining.tools to research hosting options available in your country and around the world. Scott is looking also to add more hosting and co-location providers to his hosting directory. So if you've got a mining farm or extra space you want to get filled, reach out to Scott's hosting partnership development guy, Shannon Squires. He's available on Telegram at Squires, which is S-Q-U-I-R-E-S, or use the contact form at cryptomining.tools. Yeah, well, this is the bit I'm going to dig in with you guys, because this is where I can't figure out. So massively successful crypto news rules campaigns. And like I at the time didn't like it because I'm from the Silk Road. That's how I discovered it. I discovered <clears> Bitcoin through the Silk Road. Uh, I don't anymore, but I was, I was doing a lot of drugs back then. And, you know, what an amazing website. And I'm like, I love the censorship resistance. It was cool for me because I wanted to get a tr- – my mom got sick with cancer and we wanted to get a cannabis oil. So because of the Silk Road, I – um. I knew how to get it, right? Because in the UK, you can't buy this shit. So there is this whole kind of like liberty side, freedom, blah, blah, blah. And when I was doing my research for this, I knew about crypto and these rules. I knew about that side of things, which a lot of people have challenged you on. And I think also you did a really good show with Laura Shin about actually. Hmm. But then also, like, I see you tweeting about censorship of YouTube about, I mean, I've got one of the tweets here. Uh, by investing in Bitcoin, this is you, Cameron. By investing in Bitcoin, you're facilitating a peaceful transfer of power from governments to the people. So, like, I have this spectrum of fully regulated financial product, a censorship resistant tool for freedom and liberty. And I always thought you guys were just on this kind of regulated side, and but it's I can't seem to pin you. It's almost like it's almost like you're you're the full spectrum. And some people aren't. Some people are just regulated product. Some people are just censorship resistant. Fuck the government. Let's take them down. It seems like you span the whole spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in a in a lot of ways, it's not a zero sum or a very binary. It doesn't have to be a binary viewpoint. It can be more nuanced. 
if if crypto is going to go mainstream, then we have to have some level of thoughtful regulation. We've got to know, as Gemini, we have to know our customers. But we can also sort of create a very easy way for people to get into the system. But nobody has to stay on Gemini. You, If you decide, you know, you don't want to start store your gold in a vault, you can build your own safe in your home and store your gold in that safe. The digital equivalent would be, let's say, Ledger Nano or whatever. You can self-custody crypto. Um, but most people, I mean, there's a spectrum, right? Some people... Mm. The vast majority of people want to own gold through an ETF. They don't want to actually have physical gold. They want exposure to the investment. But there is that option where you can go it alone. And that is incredibly true for crypto because it's digital. And the physical overhead of going it alone doesn't exist. And the the sort of the independence and sovereignty around crypto is unmatched with any technology before. But the on-ramps have to, you have to have an element of thoughtful regulation. And you can't really, you, you cannot point to any thriving market in the world that doesn't have some sort of rules-based system that tries to foster positive outcomes. Free-for-alls don't work. Uh, it, it it just won't. But at the same time, you know, overregulating something will absolutely stifle it. So I do think there's like a nuanced spectrum, and it doesn't have to be an either or an all or nothing situation. I, I think it's a really good point. Um, so you can be pro regulation, but disagree with the state of regulation. So you're talking about cannabis, right? You know, you can be pro-regulate or before, right? You, you mentioned your experience with cannabis. Um, no, it wasn't cannabis. Okay, well, <laughs> let's just say cannabis. Um, let's say you cannabis. can say you can be pro-regulation, and the regulation could be, you know, cannabis is legal, and you can say that's ridiculous. It should be regulatorily legal to mm. go to a dispensary to be able to get it for medical or recreational use in in moderation, right? So you want to change the regulation to make sense. And a more regulated cannabis market is better for consumers. It's better for, it's better for everyone. It's better for the government. And so I think that like, yeah, it's not, you know, binary necessarily. I think we take a case by case basis and we think that like we can change or shape the regulation to make sense as opposed to, oh, the regulation doesn't make sense. Regulation's bad. No, it's probably a good thing. Let's just make it make sense. And, and so let me let me give a, another example. In in the you know the late nineties, early two thousands, people started to realize that the recording industry was taking advantage of the customer. You pay twenty bucks for a CD, and back then twenty bucks was a lot of money. It was like a I real know, twenty bucks. And you get a CD and you get an album of maybe, and maybe you really only want one or two songs there. And people are like, we're, we're just done with this. So you have Napster, which is sort of the, the first version, mainstream version of file pirating. Napster, of course, was too centralized and ended up getting shut down. We all kind of know how that ended. And that spawned a more decentralized versions like Kazaa or whatever the, the, the services were. And they were not, um, it was not, you know, 
it, it was sort of dangerous because there's tons of malware. You could get an infected file. And so you sort of, you, you, there was risk involved. And of course, there was a risk of prosecution. Some college students and people did get, you know, prosecuted for, for piracy. Um, that was the, one of the initial strategies of the recording industry is like, we're just going to sue our way out of this problem as opposed to wait this the current system is is broken we probably need to rethink how we price and offer this to our customers and so napster was this protest effectively against what was going on and there's a couple more protests that got harder and harder to stop until finally someone from the outside in this case silicon valley you know jobs and itunes came along and said we're going to you know, create a better delivery system for you. And we're going to price this in a reasonable way at a dollar a song. And everybody said, you know what? I- I'm okay paying a dollar for a song. I believe in the artist. I want to support the artist. This feels like fair. I'm not getting totally screwed or raked over the coals here. And the piracy thing, I don't feel good about that spiritually. And it's not a safe or better experience. iTunes was just a better, better experience. But the recording industry was unable to, to really see that they needed to do that. So it doesn't have to be like, well, this system and then totally screw this system. You know, we're going to go over here and pirate and steal stuff. There is like a middle ground. And people like talk about regulation a lot and they, they, they bitch and moan and say this or that. Well, we're regulated. Part of our regulation and obligation prevents us from we have to protect your privacy. We can't mine your data and then go sell it. We can't, you know, do a lot of the things. And yet, when you look at all big tech that is unregulated, they are mining the shit out of your data all day long, and people are complaining about it. And because there's no regulation, they're not breaking any laws. They're allowed to legally do what they're doing. They can follow you around the internet. They're corporate peeping toms. They see everything you do. And so that's like, that's an obvious outcome where there's no regulation and there's no rules and everybody's, literally everybody's pissed off. I don't think anybody supports what's happened to our privacy and how we've literally given it away before our own eyes. And so, you know, I just think it's like how you frame and think about it. And the government and and these these bodies are going to need, they're always going to have some regulatory footprint, right? They're not going to let things go just, you know, willy-nilly. And so let's engage and find that great middle ground where everybody's happy. And and so that's how we, we've been thinking about it. Yeah, and look, some of it I get. Um, I'm not like one of these radical ANCAPs. Uh, like, I like some of the libertarian stuff. Uh, yeah, so I think there's some there's some merit in a lot of the free market uh, ideas, but the the one area I get like a bit bothered about is financial privacy, mm-hmm. the ability to censor transactions or block transactions. And I tell you where it bothers me, like on a personal level. You guys won't know this, but like the, I mentioned it earlier. So when my mum got sick, I used one of these dark web marketplaces to buy cannabis oil as a treatment because yeah, it's illegal here and. Um, and I was cool because I thought Bitcoin was private at the time. And then and now I wouldn't do that because then I realize it isn't. And so there's a chance that maybe I would lose use something like a, a, a mixer to, to hide my Bitcoin so I could go and make that transaction. But in doing so, that actually I get blocked out. I can get blocked out apart, you know, some sections of the you know, Bitcoin uh, economy. I could 
I could try and custody with you guys and maybe get rejected. Uh, BlockFi, uh, one of my sponsors, I could maybe try and earn interest with them. And again, I could get I could get blocked. So the financial privacy is the one area where it kind of gets to me a little bit. And and I know it's difficult because you know, you know the, if you don't play by the government regulations, they're just not going to allow your business to operate, right? It's not like you have a choice to go fuck the government. You can't just do that. But I'd be interested to know what your perspectives are on financial privacy. So um, I feel very strongly about financial privacy. And I think one of the misconceptions about Bitcoin, at least early on, was this narrative that it's anonymous or totally anonymous. Yeah. And it's it couldn't be further that, from that's the That's the US dollar. Yeah. <laughs> um, cash is king when it comes to anonymity. And I think that you look, one of, um, don't take it from us, you know, from, from what I'm saying, but look at what we've done. The third coin or the third coin we added to our platform was Zcash. And when we added it, a lot of people said, how did you manage to do that? You're, you're a New York trust company. You're regulated by DFS. And we're like, well, we, we engaged with them. We went down and we educated them and we talked to them about the benefits of commercial privacy and how when you send a wire, the only people that know that transaction occurred is the, is the sending bank and the receiving bank. The whole world doesn't see that, but they do with Bitcoin. And Zcash was, you know, as, as most people know, is a fork of Bitcoin that is trying to create, you know, it's focused on privacy and creating commercial privacy and restoring the things that uh, we have in the, the existing system in many ways. So by engaging, we, we got them comfortable with this idea and we, we drew parallels to this idea that the existing banking system is comfortable with cash, ATMs and all that stuff. You know, you don't necessarily know what happens to the cash when it leaves the system, but you do have visibility into the the entry and exit points so to speak and that's an example where we were able to get regulators comfortable with a privacy coin and we chose that project um, in part because the team we know zuko and we believe in the technology and the mission oriented aspect of their project but also the importance of, of privacy if crypto's not private and totally open, then then it's not really going to, you know, achieve a lot of things we think it can. And and we understand how open Bitcoin is because we have blockchain forensic tools as a company to look at the 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 blockchain. But look, if you go to your doctor and you run a credit card or whatnot, like nobody knows that. But in certain countries, you might go to a certain doctor for a certain procedure and or you have to do on the dark market or the black market because what you're doing is illegal, you'll get killed or stoned for it, and you spend Bitcoin, potentially you could be discovered, you know, f- for that. So uh, human rights, your dignity, all these things come into challenge, can be questioned without the right level of privacy. So people think of privacy and anonymity as like only one extreme, right? Of the end of the you know the the continuum of like illicit you know bad stuff terrorists whatever but there's so much stuff in between that's super legitimate and is legal in one country uh and, and should be in another but is not and that sort of like the the cornerstone of human rights and, and dignity is your ability to reveal yourself when you want to and when you're ready if you want to at all 
um, certain things, you know, and, and we have fairly good laws in the U.S. That, that protect that. But our money should mimic that privacy as well. And I, and I think that's pretty fundamental to the society I want to live in and the world I want to live in. So there's huge philosophical merit to coins like Zcash. The team's great. They're real. They went to the DFS as well, talked to them. So it was a kind of a joint effort. But yeah, like I think there's so much there that people don't understand. And of course, like, um, unfortunately, headlines in this, you know, the world we live in 140 characters, it's like Silk Road dark market, you know, um, things. It's just like big brush strokes for, for everything. But there's so much in between that's different. And so, yeah, like that's how we we view this. So, so I guess you you therefore support the idea of bringing better privacy to Bitcoin and allowing people to have private transactions and away from the eyes of the government. Yeah, I mean, I think that privacy is super important. Uh, currency and money have been used by governments to manipulate and control populations uh, for as long as the of money you know some governments are better than others but yeah like capital controls inability to get money in and out remittances it's just another tool right and i i think it should be limited and i think we should it, the, the other thing about our message you know to regular is like this is going to happen with or without you so <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's happening and like the people who create these projects when you say no, like they come back stronger. They're not like, oh yeah, 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 we won't do this anymore. Right. And so it's it's either work with them or against, but it's gonna happen nonetheless. And so it's better to work with us, work with companies like Gemini, have sort of like a window into this new technology, than be completely, you know, shut out. And so I think that's that's another important thing. Like the inevitability of Bitcoin to shut it down is to shut down the internet, is to become North Korea. And so I don't think the US or any other government wants to do, become that, do that, as far as last time I've checked. So you've got to work with this. Like you can't stop it. That's the, you know, the whole thing about decentralization. So how are you going to engage with it? And companies like Gemini are a good, are a good point. Um, to to do that, but like this is happening, you know. So so educate yourselves, figure out a way to regulate it in a thoughtful way. But but yeah, well, this is why I think it's interesting to have a, get, have a good proper chat to the two of you because like externally, you can see you two like doing the work, doing your interviews in your suits, crypto needs rules, and I think that actually perhaps is a bit of a misrepresentation of your real ideology of your Bitcoin thesis and where you see this going, because you do actually recognize the ills of government. You do recognize the ills of money printing, what the Fed's doing, censorship. You do seem to recognize that. And it's, and it's almost like you're, you're like, you're recognizing that to get Bitcoin to where you think it needs to be, you have to play within the system to, to begin with. Yeah. I mean, you can look, you can, and then we burn it all fucking down. <laughs> Joker, Joker of the world. I mean, you can go outside and spend your time with, you know, picketing a company or you can start a company or, or you can, you know, become a part of that company, rise to the top 
and change it from the top down, culturally, the managed, whatever. Or you can go start your own company, right? There's many ways to volunteer time to change the world. So we started a company, but we're engaging with the government and the policy we want to change or shape for a thoughtful future. And that's our approach. Someone else's approach might be like, screw this. I'm going to a different zip code or I'm going offshore. I'm going to do this differently. And that's the role they play. Um, but we're, you know, we're playing our role. It's our approach. I think there's a lot of ways to do this. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, you, again, you can spend a lot of time trying to destroy the football team or you can work with the headmaster to build the rowing team. And once people start seeing, Oh, there's that other opportunity over there. And, um, and in the case of women, um, there's tremendous amount of rowing programs in college. So there's all this opportunity for them to play a varsity sport throughout high school and college. And that's kind of to, it's always been seemed like a more positive way to put your focus. Um, and so like going back to the Napster days, you can try and sue everybody who's pirating music or just create a better experience and solve it that way. So do you think there's uh, people who've got misconceptions about about you two and Gemini then? One hundred percent. Well I think well I think they have. <laughs> I think I think and it's kind of not their fault, right? Because you see this movie and movies are so powerful. Uh, they're so indelible. I mean, even even uh, like people remember movies more than like sports performances, right? Like I watched Michael Jordan win a lot of his championships. But that doesn't resonate with me necessarily or like as much as like my favorite, like a, a film or, or a quote from a film, like The Big Lebowski or something. I mean, like yeah. those movies that people keep quoting, like, so film stars tend to reach a peak and sear themselves into your memory more so than anything else. So yeah, like the social network, you know, you have, okay, we have the, we, we figured out these guys, you know. And then you see us in suits talking about regulation. But I think that the truth is we're just a lot more nuanced um, than, you know, a picture or a movie or a business page. So I guess I guess the answer is people got to download this podcast and listen to it to get to know us. All right. So tell me a little bit about what's going on with the Wall Street people, right? Because you want to engage with Wall Street. I'm actually making a kind of like a one episode audio documentary that's coming out on Wednesday looking a little bit at Wall Street, looking a little bit what happened in 2008 and the lessons weren't learned, yet you guys still want to engage with Wall Street. So like, what I'm trying to understand is, one, why do you want to engage with them? And I think it's probably because they've got loads of money and they can help accelerate what Bitcoin can do, which is great, okay? But also, I'm trying to wonder, is there like a new generation of Wall Street that you're trying to engage with? What's going on with Wall Street? And also, what are the what are the rejections you get from people? So I think this the, is a... The- the answer is like, we're ready for Wall Street. We're not waiting for Wall Street. We have a mobile app. Like this has been a retail driven market since day one for the last decade, basically. And so we we want to meet the customer in the market where it is, but also have the enterprise technology to be able to handle when Wall Street actually comes in. Because when they do, it'll be like orders of magnitude bigger. So we want to be ready for Wall Street. And, and some of Wall Street has been here for a long, for many years. 
the market-making shops, some of the more aggressive upstart hedge funds are there. A lot of the main mainline hedge funds aren't there yet, but the partners and the principals personally are. And they've been putting like their family office money. They can't justify putting their fund money into Bitcoin, but they can put their own money, which is considerable, into Bitcoin. And so we've seen family offices high-frequency traders and market makers be in Bitcoin and crypto for actually for years, at least since 2017. But the large institutions are still not here. There's so much compliance, risks, questions. They don't want to, they've got huge franchises. They don't want to jeopardize them. And then the asset allocators, which is like the bigger, slower, more boring money, like endowments, pension plans, and whatnot. They're very sophisticated on it, but they're still not there. And that's kind of where like an ETF helps because it makes it so easy for them to just buy a security version of this through the normal distribution channels that they're already plugged into. So we're not waiting around for this. We're definitely ready, but we're speaking to you know the the individual today. You know, you can download the Gemini app and fire it up and start getting involved because that's what's really important. This movement's really about decentralization, right? Bitcoin is decentralization of gold, but the white, Satoshi's white paper outlined the blueprint for the decentralization of anything. And to me, decentralization is all about empowering you with greater uh, independence and freedom so you can rely on yourself. You don't have to. Uh, you can rely on other things. But if, if things got really bad, you at least have the option to rely on yourself. You have that choice. And so a lot of people, even in America, right, can't get a bank account or limited bank account, right? And so e even in America, we think that is a different country type thing. So that to me is the real promise of crypto is greater choice, independence, opportunity for you, you know, not for Wall Street. We didn't get in this to help Wall Street. I have nothing against Wall Street. I'm happy when they come. We'll be very thrilled when they come. It'll be great for everyone. But this is really about you, the individual. Anything on that, Cameron? I think that was well said. Yeah, I think that the the market today, you know, we're we've built for the market today, but we're also building for that future as Wall Street gets into the market more. And you're starting to see a lot of people, um, I mean, Paul Tudor Jones, is his macro outlook that came out a week or two ago was was fascinating and and sort of the probably the first of a, a number of people really coming around to Bitcoin and understanding that it is probably the, the best inflation hedge out there. And you're seeing people articulate, they like they see the problems, but they haven't quite come to Bitcoin yet. But I think we, you know, we think that they're important future future customers. I mean, we're we look forward to that day when more of Wall Street comes into crypto. I think a lot of people, maybe this is set a good segue into like a lot of people looked at the price of Bitcoin in the sell-off in March and were like, wait, what happened? Why didn't why didn't Bitcoin shine during that period of time? And the truth is that, um, well, my belief is that, first of all, everybody was running around with their hair on fire, 
trying to figure out, you know, what the, what is going on? What is the, the world fuck just is going on? <laughs> totally yeah, like coming to an is end. It the end. Um, and then what you do is you go into cash because you've got to cover margin and get liquidity to cover this or that. And nobody has time or bandwidth to say at that moment in time, well, gee, let's go into Bitcoin. They might be able to like go into gold a little bit because they have that muscle memory and they can buy an equity pretty quickly. So they could buy like a gold ETF or they can buy a futures. Uh, It's harder for a lot of these systems, you know, asset managers and wealth allocators to come into Bitcoin because they're not so used to it. We're trying to make it very easy with Gemini. We've got um, a qualified custodian. You can sign up very quickly and just start accessing it. But it it just never happens that quickly, especially when the sky is falling. What we're going to see, though, I believe, over the, the coming months is that once the dust starts settling more and people take stock of what the hell has just happened and look at fiat regimes, and the U.S. is probably the, the best positioned, but there, it, it, that being said, it's in a very precarious situation, but it's probably in the be- best situation of all fiat regimes. But people are going to take stock, and I think that's when we start to see people have the bandwidth to explore Bitcoin. And, and we've seen it anecdotally a lot leading up, you know, and even in this fall, I think I saw a lot of people reaching out and sort of saying, I get it now. I, I get the digital gold thesis. And so, you know, we've been talking about digital gold for going on eight, eight years right now. Our talking points haven't changed at all, but it takes time. I mean, they say in advertising, it takes like you have to hear something seven times <laughs> before you you buy a product or whatever. Maybe with Bitcoin, you got to hear it like 700 times. But once it clicks, people get it. And it's really cool to see once people come into a system, how passionate they become about it. Well, it's because people keep always have that conversation with Bitcoin about mass adoption. And one of the things I was talking about someone recently, it's like we have mass awareness. Like everyone's heard of it now. Like I have a Bitcoin podcast. When people say, what do you do? I was like, oh, I've got a Bitcoin podcast. Nobody says to me anymore, well, what's Bitcoin? Yeah. They will ask, is it a good time to buy? But the the mass awareness is there. It is just that thing to get people to click because it takes it takes a long time. I am wondering though on the Wall Street stuff because, like I said, I'm making this like a little audio documentary, and I went through what happened in 2008, and I was like, well, that was bullshit. Fuck Wall Street. Fuck the bankers. And then I've been looking at what's happening now, and I've been kind of like, well, fuck Wall Street. Fuck big business, and fuck the CEOs. And sorry, I'm swearing a lot. But, um, <laughs> okay. uh, sorry, I do swear a lot. I curse a lot. Um, but, but again, I'm just like. How many times are we going to do this? How many times is this cycle going to repeat whereby whereby the, the money system is essentially a casino for investors in on Wall Street to make money? And every time they screw it up, like it's the little man who suffers, right? It's yeah. the it's the small business. It's the hardworking people who are queuing up at food banks. I'm like, how many times are we going to go through this? And I do wonder, like, we, I've asked you about what happens when, yeah, how do we get uh, Wall Street into Bitcoin? But Say with flipping it the other way, when Bitcoin infects Wall Street, do you think that changes the game of Wall Street? Does Wall Street become a different beast? Well, I think that so Wall Street is such a broad term, and that's one of like the cha- challenges. It's it's so easy to sort of create this like object out there that's 
in, you know, Wall Street, obviously there's a ton more nuance to it. But, you know, I think one of the problems with the Occupy Wall Street movement is it didn't really have like an answer or like a strategy forward. It's like, we're just going to occupy and we're upset. And a lot of the people that were sort of uh, harassed or pilloried, like even anecdotally on the street, were people in Wall Street that were in sort of middle office or back office. And maybe you're like the, you know, the, 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 the son of a fireman. And we're, we're making pretty good money, but, but working their asses off and weren't making the millions when you think of, you know, Wall Street and, and uh, you know, you think of the Hollywood, the American Psycho and Wall Street, you know, Oliver Stone's Wall Street. That, that's, you know, a lot of people aren't, they're part of Wall Street, but they're not actually that part of that part of it. And I think that what's so amazing about Bitcoin is it actually is a blueprint for like a strategy forward. But the, the more that I kind of step back, the more I think we're, we might actually all be on the same team in one way. I think most people on Wall Street are, are deeply, deeply concerned about what the hell has been going on with the printing of US dollars. And so you could spend a lot of time being like, oh, it's us versus them. And then you kind of come around to this idea that actually we, in principle, agree on, on most of the same things. And when, when you really like look at what's been going on, the deficit spending in a non-wartime bull market that has been accumulating over and over again for the past decade, it, it's staggering and it's frightening. And what what we are leaving, you know, what the the boomers are going to be leaving for the next generation to clean up is mind blowing. And you look at college education, completely broken. There's no way most of these people can can work their way out of out of those debts. So, but I don't think that like a lot of people agree or believe in the college education system being broken or believe that education should be that expensive. We're pretty much all on the same team. Just like, how do we go and solve it? And so when I read Paul Tudor Jones's macro outlook, I was like, we are, we are speaking the same language. Um, this is music to my ears and we're, we're on the same team. Let's go, let's go solve this thing. And let's go take Bitcoin literally to the moon where we create a check and balance on the system and people are like, okay, enough is enough. And we're just not going to allow the government to, to distort and screw up our system so much. I mean, Wall Street is literally one street in New York, but most of Wall Street, when we think about it, happens on servers in a parking lot in New Jersey. Um, we don't have to fix that. We can just create a new one, Right. Just like back to, we don't have to fix the football team. Let's just go create the rowing team. And some people from the football team might join us. Some people from Wall Street might come join us. Our CTO used to be the CTO of the New York Stock Exchange. Our chief compliance officer was head of global financial crimes at Morgan Stanley. They're joining us. And we're going to build this this new frontier using crypto to reimagine the old world in our own new way. So I think that's the positive way to sort of look at it. And when Wall Street comes along or people leave Wall Street to join us, that's great. Like think about, um, you know, going out West and settling the West. I don't think it was worse when people picked up and started joining. 
you know, and building up, getting the railroad tracks out there, the sheriff in town, kind of building more saloons, more like, I don't think people who live out West now pine for like <laughs> the beginning days of the, of the wild West. Um, so I think when like wall street comes and brings in capital and, and human capital and more, more, um, you know, people, I think it's only going to make things better the same way that like, uh, new frontiers are great and exciting in the beginning, but you kind of want them to build up into mature things. At some point. Yeah, and, and that's just to add add further to that point a little bit is that I don't think anybody, for the most part, the vast majority of people at Gemini, and we're now pushing 260 people, are actually from crypto. Most people are coming from technology companies or finance or hedge funds or whatever. And Gemini is their first foray into crypto. And I, I kind of love the the new world analogy of America. Like people they're they you know they're sitting wherever they are in Europe or and and they're like GTFO we're we're just going to we're going to jump on on a, a boat we'll probably die on the journey over uh, if we don't we're going to settle settle in the new world and and maybe we'll die like within the first 6 months but if not it's still worth it we're just going to go build this new country in the system and what makes America America is is the system and the rules. It's the constitution. It's not the the land. It's not, I mean, it, obviously the people, but but the rule set. And it's a 250 year plus rule set. And um, it's worked phenomenally well. But it's um, not just, it's not just the rules, right? It's the culture. It's the dream yeah. and the philosophy because the constitution's open source. You can just copy it and paste it into any country, right? You want. But nobody does that, and it doesn't seem to no. work. So it's really like the purpose that we all buy into. So, like you know, let's start something new as opposed to trying to like change the philosophy, culture, the stripes of the old. I think I can give a good outside perspective on that because there's no country I've visited more times in America. I've been like 60, 70 times. I love and I love it. I love going to all different parts of America. But recently, I've been studying the Constitution, so I saw Hamilton in New York nice. and London, and I nice. was like, okay, uh, London was better. We were kinder to the king. Um, <laughs> but I, I so I've been watching documentaries about Jefferson, about uh, Washington. I've been trying to study the Constitution, and it's really it is really fucking interesting. And it is it does feel like you have this. You have this way, this cultural way of saying we can go and build something, we can do what we want, if, and, and if we don't like the government, we can stand up to the government. But I do also feel like one of the shames that I find at the moment is I don't think you have political leaders who are similar to the founding fathers. I think they're so far away from them. And I think this is why we need Bitcoin, because... We have, you know, we look and we look at what's been going on in 2008, and especially what's going on now. Like I look at someone like Steve Mnookin, who was part of the architecture that created the 2008 crisis, and then bought a bank to, to go and steal houses off the people that he helped lose their jobs, and now he's Treasury Secretary. And I don't think those people. I think they're a long way from your founding fathers. So I like the way for that people stand up for the Constitution. Americans do because I think it's brilliant. I just feel it's a shame your politicians don't. You know, the, the, the founding fathers, um, they, I think it's also important to note that there is a lot of disagreement. And, and Hamilton and all the papers, the Federalist Papers, 
um, how to set up this new form of government and tons of disagreement and discourse. So I think like when you look at like Bitcoin and there's like regulation, screw regulation, this or that, and uh, it, it is kind of, uh, it's important to have disagreement. We're not going to agree on everything for sure. And they were visionaries and revolutionaries. And But this kind of goes back to our idea, like the, the campaign that we ran last year, the revolution needs rules, throwing over the king the tea party that like, you know, in Boston or whatever, that's step one. But what makes America, America is what they did after that. And they, they, you know, they went zero to one and they built the country. It's literally a startup country. We built it and we know how that sort of played out. I think that one of the challenges is, is, it, you know, maybe to, to draw parallels to, to startups when you lose the ability to take risks and you're kind of just managing the franchise and not willing to disrupt yourself, then you run into problems and you rely too Mi- much Microsoft on Microsoft is pretty a pretty awesome analogy, right? Like Microsoft, there's a period it's getting back to, it, it lost its way, right? For a good 10 mm-hmm. or 15 years and it's finding its way back. And the self-quarantine feels like Groundhog Day, right? But the, the havings feel like Groundhog Day too. If you look at the, the, the Genesis block, the inscription in the Genesis block, and then the inscription in block, uh, what is it, 639,000? Are we in the same movie? Like, and it's um, 12, 12 years it's later. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. <laughs> and it's just perpetuating. No, it's the sequel. So, um, it's the Empire Strikes Back where everything's gone to shit. But Bitcoin's the answer. Right, it's the only yeah. hedge or vaccine to give you immunity to the disease of money printing, and so this is going to come to a head. It can't go on forever. And I actually tweeted, you know, what's the inscription of the next having in four years? You know, dot dot dot, like fill in the, you know, caption caption this. Um, so we'll see, but it can't go on forever. So maybe as a country, we've lost our way at some point, but I think we can get it back. Yeah, I mean, you still have a constitution, right? And people still defend the constitution. It's it's still there. It's not like anyone's trying to change the constitution. Did I miss something then with this revolutions need rules? Like, I'm I'm quite a simple guy, right? So when I saw it, I was like, what the fuck are you on about, man? This is a revolution. I don't want any, any rules. But <laughs> actually, if you talk up, if you actually look back at what happened with the Declaration of Independence, that was a, it's, you know, in essence, a revolution against us. The British, you kicked us out and threw our tea into the, into was it Boston Harbor? But, but actually, there was a bunch of rules created. Is, is am I missing something there? When I was like, revolutions need rules. That's not sexy. Are you? Were you harping back to such a situation as that? Yeah, we we exactly were. And and if you look at some of the in- imagery, it, it harkens back to I think George Washington crossing the Delaware. They're sort of the revolutionary, but the founding fathers. Um, imagery also oath but, on uh, oath on the tennis court in the French Revolution where they signed the oath on the uh, court tennis court right and it, so a, a lot of that I mean is informed by our early experience in Bitcoin and 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 using Mount Gox and um, ha- seeing it go down for for 12 hours at a time and constant brownout and back then the main news source in crypto was reddit and if you just go through reddit forums people are just you know super you know slagging on gox and and upset about it 
And, and, and Gox is, is sort of the classic example of that business would never be, would never be approved in, in, in New York to, to do business. It would have never passed muster. And so you, you've got to have some sort of safeguards in place. Otherwise the, it can get really ugly and people get hurt. And that, I mean, it's, it's all in, sort of informed by our experience in the wild west days and understanding that like, look, we've got to get some, some rules in here if this is going to go mainstream. Otherwise it's just going to be, you know, this, this economy is going to exist on the magic, the gathering exchange that pivoted. And that's not really exciting or, or, you know, the prospects of that long-term aren't, aren't too interesting. And the, the message is also, it's, it's unclear, right? Um, but it's not. At the same time, it's clear. But I think it's more directed at the companies built on top of crypto and Bitcoin as opposed to Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin has rules. It's embedded in the code. Um, it needs rules. That's the, why people buy into the system. The, the companies that are built on top of it, especially the ones that custody your money, need to be or should be thoughtfully regulated. But so there's a couple of different layers to the message. And there's also a little ambiguity. And that's that makes a great advertising campaign, right? If some people like kind of get it or interpret it, it's sort of like social network. You can come out of theater and like argue all these points. And if someone takes a picture and is a little bit pissed off and throws it up on Twitter, well like, thank you. Like it's working. Um, so there's it's supposed to be a little bit thought-provoking in a way. And we don't expect everyone to, to agree with us. And I'm not even sure we fully understand, like fully know what we mean too. The constitution is something that does evolve. It's a rule base that evolves. It's all experimentation. So even New York State, like their rules may evolve. And this is all like one big experiment. I'm not going to say that like, we've all figured this out. You know, I don't think Bitcoin core developers understand if they've like figured it all out yet, right? Like the code that exists today is very different than the code that Satoshi published or launched into the world with the Genesis block. And I think his fingerprints are even him are, are, are very even hard to find or discern at this point. So the revolution re needs rules. It means, means a lot of things. It can mean many things to many people. But it gets the but like the social network, it gets the conversation started, and ultimately, that's a good thing. Well, the crypto needs rules definitely got a lot of people talking. There's no doubt about that. I don't know who your agency is in New York, but it definitely got people talking. Oh, I I hated it at the time. I, like, <laughs> I think I was I think I was trolling you. I think I made my own banners up. I was like, I don't know, I can't remember, but but I kind of like on reflection, I get it. And look. Bitcoin has rules, has consensus rules. It works because of those rules and you can't change those rules. And I also, look, the other thing I get is that I think we need everyone. I think we need the full spectrum of people. I think we need the badass, hardcore, OG Bitcoiners, the ANCAP crazy kind of like, fuck you, fuck the government. I think we need the whole spectrum to kind of morph Bitcoin into what it is and what it will be. I think, I think if we're all on the same page... I don't think we would get the right kind of progression. Do you know what I mean? To yeah, totally I, agree. I mean, I think we yeah, have I mean, to be a melting pot. If, if you think of like, um, we need to be a melting pot. And, and I think different points of view is what makes crypto awesome. 
and you don't have, you know, a ton of groupthink or everybody just sort of uh, ratifying each other. But I think that like there's the Gemini platform, I think is, is, you know, attracts folks who believe in sort of the opportunity, um, but also believe in, you know, believe in the frontier, but doing it in a way where people are, you know, there's some protection and we're trying to do it in a way that fosters trust because there's so much distrust in the asset class. There's so many horror Mm -hmm. stories. There's so many hackings. There's so many bad actors. There's so many people who are thinking, you know, playing checkers when we really need to be playing chess or thinking one move ahead when we need to be thinking 10 moves ahead. And that's, that's the core group that we're really speaking to and, and appealing to when you think of like, great companies like Apple that do protect your privacy, but also build great products and have done a good job on there. It's, it's always sort of think different. It's not, let's go burn shit down. And, and, uh, and you feel it with their products and you feel it with the company that they, they mean what they say and they do what they say by and large. And, and, and that is, you know, Gemini, if there's like something that makes us different, is that we are our goal is to earn and maintain trust. We're not going to tell you that we're the most trusted. It's not for up for us to 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 make that determination. It's up to you to make that determination. What we're going to do is do things that that try and earn it and maintain it and and we're going to speak to to those individuals the same way, you know, someone who buys an Apple product, they're they're identifying with that movement. And with that ethos, there's some programmers and people that are going to want to use Linux. They're more hardcore. They don't really care about the interface. They sit on, you know, a terminal and they, they're, they just, whatever. It's just a, it's a mach- piece of machinery or whatever. There's other people that are going to buy a Dell because they believe, you know, they, they really want to save the cost. You know, their cost, the, that, that cost has been passed on to me and I'm thankful for that. And I'm going for the Dell. So there's a spectrum and it all kind of fits into that personal computing revolution. This crypto revolution were, you know, there's the Gemini, you know, part of that spectrum and uh, that we speak to. And, and then there's a, a spectrum that's unregulated offshore. Anything goes freewheeling that speaks to another customer. It's just not the game we're playing. And, and you mentioned that gap between you now go around and when people ask you what you do, and you say, oh, Bitcoin, you utter the word Bitcoin, they've heard it, but they're not in. And why is nope. that? And I think a company like Gemini can help bridge that gap. And ultimately, if we do that to some degree, then I think it's going to be great for, for crypto and the revolution. Yeah. Well, listen, look, I'm conscious I've had... A lot more of your time than I expected. Um, nearly two hours of yours, Cameron. A bit less of Tyler's because he was late, but we'll, uh, we'll forgive you. <laughs> no, listen, look, I, I could probably do a like a five-hour monster show if, if I really wanted to. Um, this has been fascinating, but I know you're busy, so you probably want to get on with some things. Let me go out with a final question for both of you. We'll go with you first, Tyler, and then finish up with you, Cameron. But like, realistically, in your eyes, like... You've already made enough money. Money isn't the issue for you guys. You said it before. You, you get to a certain point, it's boring. This is there's something else going on here. Like, what is success to you 
not like personally with Bitcoin, like not how well does Gemini do? Like what is success with Bitcoin? What, what do you think needs to happen for you to go, fuck, we really did it? Well, I think there's an obvious, simple sort of price framework, right? If Bitcoin's gold 2.0, then it's got to have a larger market cap than than gold. But I think the deeper answer is, can we make the current system better? And we talked about all this money printing. It seems like Wall Street keeps failing and bringing everyone down, yet they always land on their feet time and time again. And it's like the same movie with a with an unhappy ending for the majority of the world, except for the few that keep like creating the problems and also don't seem to like be the victims. They have this like golden parachute all the time. So if we can create that alternative, that check and balance, if Bitcoin can be that, that makes everything better, that to me is is pretty significant, meaningful success. So I would I would say I first of all I, I, I agree with that. And I believe that so Bitcoin really created the blueprint of how to decentralize anything. And it it created like the entire genre. And what I love to see, uh, you know, in addition to Bitcoin really rivaling gold in market cap, is other decentralized projects start to challenge all of the centralized services that make up the web and web 2.0 today. And so when people get upset at a social network and they're like, you know, delete Facebook, I'm upset with how they're treating my privacy and go where you don't have another opportunity. And I think it would make Facebook better and it would make, you know, uh, with more choice and it would really force like a healthier ecosystem of options and it may turn out that that the vast majority of people are totally fine with being on Facebook. Great. But at least they have an option. And we're not there yet. I think Web3 is, is very young and new. But as we you know, push down the road and have alternatives that are viable, that's when I think we start to say, okay, this is really changing the world and, and, and exciting. Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Um, despite the long wait to try and get you on, I'm, I'm really glad how this turned out. This is the interview I wanted to hear with you guys. This was covering the stuff I wanted to hear. So I'm really glad I got to do it. I think people are going to love this. Hopefully, at some point, we'll be able to get back on planes. One day in the future, we'll get to do this in person again. Um, but I wish you both the best of luck and thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, love the questions. This is definitely the interview I wanted to to do so the feelings mutual and hopefully one day we can get together in person share a beer at, or as you might say it share a pint yeah really appreciate it and uh we'd love to come your way because we are opening in uh the uk and europe an office there and uh trying to get our license for that part of the world so maybe we'll come to you well then i've got a great place to take you to dinner perfect you just let me know when you're in town looking forward All to right. it appreciate it guys cheers cheers Okay, so what did you make of that one? Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy hearing from Cameron and Tyler? Now, I've always been curious about them and their intentions. Are they just finance guys trying to get rich off Bitcoin? Do they really give a shit about the ills of government and the nature of money now? 
So I was glad to finally get a chance to make this interview because I've heard interviews with him in the past, but usually it focuses on money or ETFs or Bitcoin. Like I wanted to know a bit more about them. So I'm really glad they were game for this and I'm really glad I got to make this and grateful because nothing was off limits. There was nothing they didn't answer, which was amazing. Now, we do in Bitcoin have this spectrum of people from the you know, very hardcore, dedicated Bitcoiners who are running a node, their privacy focus and caps, to those who play within the system, accept there's regulation and take the battle directly to the regulators. Now, I know some people think that's bullshit and you shouldn't be doing that, but I think Bitcoin is always going to attract different types of people. And I think having people fighting on both the inside and outside of the system will give a greater chance of Bitcoin continuing to succeed. Now, Changing the ills of the modern financial system is never going to be easy. And Cameron and Tyler are fighting the battle from the inside. They're working with regulators to ensure that Bitcoin can get into the hands of as many people as possible. Now, this is going to come with KYC. And I know a lot of people hate this. It's actually very hard at the moment to buy Bitcoin without KYC. And whilst I agree KYC is awful, terrible, I still buy Bitcoin on exchanges. That's where the majority of people do it. So I think we should be fighting the regulators, not the people who are engaging with them and following the rules. So, yeah, I mean, I really got to do this interview. I think I understand Cameron Tyler a lot more. I will hopefully do another one in the future. I want to do one in person because in person is always better. But I just want to say a massive thanks to both of them for coming on the show, agreeing to do this and uh, allow me just to ask any questions and being game for it all. If you've got any questions about the show, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And as I said in my intro, I have just released a new show on Defiance, the Money Game Cheaters Edition, which is a mini documentary looking at the ills of government and central banking. It's a switch up for Defiance. It's a new show style. The interview style, as I've got with this show, just it wasn't really working. and It was growing and then it wasn't growing. So I thought I'd switch it up and try these new mini documentaries. And this one is a good way of starting. It features Andres Antonopoulos, Caitlin Long, Raoul Powell, Travis Kling and Ben Hunt. Go and check it out. Let me know what you think. I really would appreciate some of your feedback. And that is available at Defiance. Science.news.